0: Greetings and welcome to Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. I'm an author, coach and healer. Thank you for joining us today as we explore how childhood experiences can create malfunctioning adults. I also open the Akashic Records of my guests for a jolt of inspiration and validation. I find there are always borrowed benefits by hearing someone else's reading. But if you want the full experience for yourself, go to theandygrant.com slash records. You'll have the opportunity for a discounted session there. Again, go to the slash records, because you are not just a meat suit. My guest today is Justin Long. Justin is an author, business owner, and podcaster whose most recent book is called The Righteous Rage of a Ten-Year-Old Boy. We explore how the wounds, slights, and traumas of childhood affect us as adults. Justin and I discuss the father wound and adverse childhood experiences leading to more dysfunction and addiction if not looked at. He shares the three most common unconscious drivers affecting all of us. Justin also speaks to how the narrow view of what a man is that he grew up with, mostly anger and rage, set him up for a very rough ride headed into adulthood, and what he did to heal those wounds and boost his own awareness. Let's do it. Hello, Justin, and welcome to Real Men Feel.
1: Andy, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on the
0: show. Yeah, I'm really glad to talk to you. So your most recent book is called The Righteous Rage of a 10-Year-Old Boy. So tell me, why did you write that?
1: It started out as a journal. I was at a point in my life, and I've gone through a lot of self-awareness, evolution, and personal development and growing, but in spite of all that, I wasn't where I wanted to be in life. And so I went back to counseling and I found a therapist that I really connected with and we went on like the fast and furious rampage of tearing into my childhood and understanding why the why behind all my stuff. And it was so much information. I had to journal it. I just couldn't keep it on straight in my head. So it started out as a journal just for me. And the farther it went, the more I realized that this needs to be a book that other people can use in their lives. My history is my history. The insecurities that have plagued me are the standard three or four that plague so many So it became a book. Cool. So what do
0: you see as those standard three or four things that most people are dealing with?
1: You know, it's all based on different experiences, I think. But the seeking approval, you know, the people pleasing aspect of trying to be everything to everyone is probably the most common thing that I see. The second one is the big chip on the shoulder of having to prove ourselves over and over all day, every day and never getting that approval that we need. And I don't know where it is that you live, but where I live, the standard is the jacked up truck with the giant tires and the loud exhaust and all the stuff like it just screams trying to prove worth. And I went through all those phases. I had the big truck. I had the loud Harley. I did all the things to try to be the manly man. And and none of that was it. But the other big one is having the resentment from not getting that approval and not getting the nod from people that think that we're all that. And Mm. Just becomes an attitude that you carry around with you. Like, I already know that you're going to reject me. So fuck you. Gotcha. So
0: that's all kind of in hindsight. That's as you unpacked your life. So tell me about what was life like for that 10 year old boy?
1: I was raised by two very emotionally dysfunctional people. And they were just so challenged in so many ways. I didn't understand that at the time. But in retrospect, I can see that my parents were very broken people. But what I knew at that time was that my dad was angry. He was the ultra disciplinarian and I didn't use the word abuse in my inner monologue when I thought about my life, but I knew that my life was different than most of the kids that I went to school with. And you know, I grew up forming certain beliefs about myself because of the environment that I was raised in. You know, my dad didn't believe in playing. He believed in working. He was a workaholic. And so, you know, I always had a huge list of tasks that I had to complete and it was never good enough. So I would get punished for my shortcomings. So I grew up believing that no matter how hard I try, I'm going to fail and I'm going to get punished. And I carried that stuff into adulthood. And my mom was broken in different ways. Hers manifested in different ways, but she was, you know, a manipulator. She was deep into extreme religiosity. She really had a very hard time accepting reality. And so between those two things, I had all of the ingredients to launch into the world and become a raging alcoholic or a drug addict or, you know, all the different ways that people manifest emotional challenges. And I did that. I was the poster child for it. So I I left home as soon as I possibly could. I was an active alcoholic by the time I was 19 or 20. Immediately got into a relationship with the first woman that would sleep with me twice. We moved in together and had a dysfunctional 10 years. You know, I did all the stuff and I was miserable and I hated myself, but it all started because of that environment that I was brought up in. And right. when I understand that from the 30,000 foot perspective, I realized that I never had any other way to be. It was always going to come out like that. Right. Dysfunction breeds dysfunction until you peel and look at it. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When I got sober, I got sober at 32. A couple of years into that, I met the guy that became my mentor, and his name was Roland Mora. And he was an old gay one-eyed Apache Vietnam veteran yoga instructor and just like had the long hair and just you know the glass eye that's looking off in the wrong direction, like just wow, such a presence, unbelievable. But he changed everything about my life. But early on, he used a little story that I connected with so much. He said you can go to the top of the tallest skyscraper and throw a rock off into space. And that rock will have no idea that it's falling because it's so far to the ground for the vast majority of that trip, that rock's going to think it's flying. And it won't be until the end that it realizes what's really happening. And I was like, that was my life, you know, from the time I was born until I was in my thirties, I was falling. And I thought that I was flying. It's what, you know, and you don't know what you don't know. Right. So I was following on a trajectory that my parents launched me into. And until I got, you know, enough awareness to change what was going on, then, you know, I was just a a ball of destruction.
0: What was the first step or or the best step, however it feels to you in creating that
1: self-awareness? Oh, it's really hard to pinpoint like if there was a moment, but, and I didn't have a big crash and burn end of my drinking career like a lot of people do. It was, it was a very gradual You know, just sliding down the slope slowly, slowly, slowly. And when I made it into a recovery program, I finally found a group of people that sat in a room and talked about how they felt. I'd never experienced that before. I'd worked in places. I worked, I was either in the army or working for the army most of my adult life. And it's super machismo. You know, it's all manly, manly, man bullshit. And nobody ever talked about how they felt. And so, you know, I was... Running around comparing my insides to everybody's outsides. And I failed every time, you know, because everybody looked like they've got it together. They don't talk about how they feel. And so when I got to AA, I found a group of people that were talking about not feeling right and not feeling like they fit in and things aren't all in alignment on the inside and how that sucks and how the different ways they tried to deal with that. And. That was the first time I ever had any exposure to somebody like putting a name on it or showing me a picture of what's going on. And it totally clicked with me. I was like, I'm not a freak. You know, this is a thing. I have a thing. And that means, you know, there's a way out. There's hope. There's a way to find my way through this and change that. And that was the seed that is still growing into a tree. You know, I don't think it will ever stop. You know, my level of self-awareness has quadrupled in the last two years, but I'm 13 years into this. And, you know, when I compare where I am now to where I was in 2008, I can't even fathom it was so far back. But that also gives me hope that, you know, 13 years from now, hopefully when I look back on this point, I will say, man, I've, I didn't know anything back then. That growth and that continued pursuit of self understanding has become such a passion for me and it's central to everything that's going on in my life. All my success, all my failure, I'm doing it intentionally and I understand what's happening. I'm not just along for the ride. Awesome.
0: I keep finding over and over again that to me, what you're talking about is authenticity. Mm, As men, we're all society tells us. Our teachers, parents, peers can tell us that we have to act a certain way and put on this facade and charade like you get all figured out and I'm fine and thanks for asking, no matter what's going on Mm -hmm. inside. I'm like, yep, fine, all good. That's what you give outside. So, you know, perhaps, do you ever think that addiction serves you in a way to get you into such a pained place that you find a group of people (laughs) that drop
1: the act? You bet. I think about this on a semi-regular basis. In my limited spare time, I like to write science fiction. I read a lot of science fiction. And so I've thought about time travel quite a bit. And like, if I could go back and Alter it all to where I had a a great childhood and upbringing, and I never experienced all this stuff. Would I do that? I don't think I would, you know, because I have so much perspective. The worse things got, the more I can appreciate how good things are now. And without having that perspective, I don't think I could appreciate how amazing my life is today. And so I am super grateful that I was an alcoholic. I'm grateful that my life sucked so bad that I put a gun in my mouth over and over. I'm really grateful I didn't pull the trigger. But, you know, if it hadn't got that bad, I don't think it could ever have been this good.
0: Yeah, I I hear that. So I'm a survivor of multiple suicide attempts myself. And actually, I was a guest on the podcast recently, and they asked me, if you could time travel, what would you go back and change? (laughs) I was like, nothing. Because it took all the shitty, horrible moments to get me to today Mm -hmm. and actually like myself, which is not something I thought was possible when I was younger. So,
1: yeah. Once you understand how intense that thought is that everything had to happen in order to get you where you are now right like every piece of it was critical and it's a
0: cliche that you know there's always a gift in our shit and when you're in this shit you know i'm never like this is the best thing ever like i've never had that experience (laughs) but going through it enough to know that eventually you know i just get through this take it a day at a time even minute by minute whatever it may be that there's always something better on the other side of whatever horrible feeling I'm dealing with or experience I'm having. This temporary is always proves to be temporary. Has that been your experience?
1: Absolutely. And you know, the more times I go through that cycle, the more I can recognize I'm in a cycle and I know, you know, I can embrace the fact that this sucks because I know that I'm going to be better, whether it's a few days from now or a few weeks, whenever I figure this out and come out of it, I'm going to be better. And so I can almost... You'll create anticipation in the middle of of the low point, just knowing that the high point is going to be awesome.
0: So, dysfunctional childhood, rough family, emotionally shut down, end up in addiction, which is your pathway to having a mentor, to therapy, and becoming self aware, doing lots of healing. But, you know, between age 10 and 19, when you're, you know, you're wounded or the wounds are being created, Mm -hmm. you're not using any sort of substance yet. How did you survive that time? What did that boy do?
1: It's fascinating what we will do to escape reality. And we didn't have a television in the house that I grew up in. I think a lot of kids can escape into TV. I didn't have that option. To the point that you know that was one of my childhood events that ended up ostracizing me from my class. As part of my mom's religiosity thing, got to the where she didn't. She believed that you know anything coming across a TV screen is satanic. And so I wasn't allowed to look at a TV screen at school either. So when we had in in second grade, they roll out the TV on the big roller cart back in the 80s and watch a movie on Friday afternoon. Justin had to get up in front of the class and walk outside with a book to go sit in the hallway, right? So that messed with me. But books were my escape. And people look at me like I'm crazy when I say that I read books alcoholically, but I absolutely read books alcoholically. I learned you know, probably five or six years old that I can crack open Encyclopedia Brown or the Bobsy Twins or the Hardy Boys or something and go be in a different world. And I used that every moment that I could. And I got in a lot of trouble both at home and at school for reading when I was supposed to be doing something else. But books were absolutely my escape. And that served you because you've gone on to become an author. (laughs) That's very true. I I had a better vocabulary than most of the kids in my class. And I was in a small town. i had a limited library. So I read a lot of things that were way beyond my age group and history and all kinds of stuff. So it was an education. I don't regret that either, mm-hmm. but it's anything that would take me out of the moment. Cause you know, when books weren't available, I, my imagination had to serve me. And a lot of times that would be working with my dad on one of his endless projects. You know, I'm standing there holding the flashlight for him while he's working on the car for hours and hours and hours. I'm off in my head, you know, just creating a universe where I would want to be if I could just transport myself there in that moment. So, but that's an unhealthy thing in a lot of ways because it taught me to just check out when I'm unhappy, when I'm not comfortable where I am and that can easily get out of hand. And it did, but I looked for anything that would make me feel different than I did in that moment. And until I found alcohol, it was a variety of other things, mostly books, but I think at 14 or 15, I discovered tobacco and I had my first dip of Copenhagen And that gave me a rush and made me feel great and different and accepted by the guy that gave it to me. Like I was just so desperate for anything that was different from where I was that I was willing to embrace anything. And that's a dangerous place to be. Yeah,
0: that's what I find over and over again in my own life and talking to clients and guests. I see that all addiction is rooted in not wanting to feel.
1: Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it is.
0: Escape, not feel that pain, not feel that you know, perpetual idea of anger from your dad. And no matter what I do, I'm a failure and I'm going to get punished no matter what I do. So yeah, just as part of self-awareness and personal growth, I thought, oh, you got to be present. And for a child, being present in a bad situation is torturous. It's dangerous, right? It feels life-threatening to be present and fully here, surrounded by people that are, I don't want to, you know, be bashing anyone's parents or anything, but, you know, hurt people hurt people I'm yes. sure that their upbringing created how they acted and you know luckily you were the perhaps the first one in your even your, your lineage to say you know what this can't continue I'm not going to live this way I'm not going to bring more
1: people into the world this way does that resonate at all oh absolutely you know I sometimes I feel like it's pointless when I try to look at the grand scheme of things because it's every family it's, it's human beings in general but But my dad had a horrible upbringing because his dad had a horrible upbringing because his dad had a horrible upbringing and the same on the mother's side. My mom was the oldest child in her family, and she wasn't the pretty girl that her mom could take to sewing circle and show off to all the other ones. And her little sister was. So she had all that that she was carrying around. My dad was also the oldest child, but he grew up. Especially in the 50s, you know, it was a very, very different mindset on manliness. And if you're a boy, this is what you're going to do and all that stuff. But that was still a result of his dad who grew up in the 30s and his dad's ideas on how all this is going to go. And it just it never ends. It goes back to the beginning of time. And yeah. I'm so grateful that I didn't have a kid because I didn't start understanding all this stuff until I was in my late 30s. And had I had a kid when I was 20, like everybody else, you know, it it would have already been too late. That kid would be, you know, continuing the cycle of destruction onto their kids by now. So it's such a hard thing. By the time you figure all this stuff out, you know, it's generally too late to stop the damage that you've done to the next generation. And I don't know what the answer is for that.
0: Yeah. It's always struck me since I was a kid and and aware of this and, again, thought I was the only person that thought this, but... We're allowed and, you know, society welcomes progress and technology and change and advancement, except when it comes to what it means to be a man. That's right. Because you talked about growing up in the 50s or the 30s, like, yeah, I think the definition of masculinity was probably the same through all those decades. Probably so. And even now, a lot of people still keep trying to keep, you know, men are this one thing. Everyone else can change and we can, you know, evolve and all sorts of stuff. But no, men are this one thing.
1: Boys don't cry, you know, you're going to stand up and rub some dirt on it and do the thing no matter what. You know, yeah. boys don't feel. I think that's yeah. the center of it. Boys don't feel. And it's just not true. Right. And again, because the secret behind real men feel is
0: that men are human. Mm-hmm. And all human beings have emotions and in fact feel. And all men do as well. And it's just like how thick of a mask of bullshit are we presenting to the world and to ourselves, mm-hmm. which eventually is going to come out as a malfunctioning adult and dysfunction and addiction and, Lord, exploitation of others. It just It's almost like everything that's considered toxic masculinity is the result of
1: not feeling. That's exactly what it is. You know, my dad, he expressed rage and he expressed rage. And sometimes he would express <laughs> rage. So it was his reaction to everything. He didn't know how to be happy. He didn't know how to be curious. He didn't know how to do anything other than be mad. That's the tool that I had going into the world. And then, when I, you know, in my early adulthood, when I'm in the army and in my 20s and trying to figure out who I am and how I'm going to be, because the way I am is obviously not acceptable. I need to model myself after somebody else. I found that, you know, the asshole is always the guy that gets the girls. So I tried to turn myself into an asshole. I stopped being the sensitive soul that I am and just started, you know, I had to train myself to not care about people, to be shitty and just all of the things that I thought would make me tough enough and strong enough that other people would accept me and then I would be okay. And I just layered on and layered on all of these masks, like you were saying, and drinking helped me feel okay. But when I wasn't drinking, I had such a disparity between how I felt and how I needed to present myself to the world. And that gap just got wider and wider and wider. I couldn't maintain that. I think a lot of people can't maintain that. I agree. Was there any other male role model in your
0: life or or was it only you were just seeing anger and rage and that's all you saw from allowable emotions for a man?
1: You know, I struggle with that because while there were other men in my life, my dad did such a good job of convincing me that mom and dad are the only ones that know what's right and you can't pay attention to anybody else. I believed that like it, even in, in my adulthood and knowing all of these things that are you know not true I still have to manually override that because it was imprinted in my head at such a young age so I looked at other guys that you know let their kids get away with things that I would get in trouble for and while part of me was jealous the other part of me was like oh that guy's not doing that right you know and it's crazy that I could create such a overlap in my brain that this is horrible and I don't want to be going through this yet at the same time I think everybody should be going through this you know Like, it's it's ridiculous.
0: When you met your mentor, Roland, who was a man, was it easy or more difficult to accept a new version of a man, you know, countering everything you had grown up with? Or, you know, did you need that? Or how did that fall into place?
1: It was not easy. I got to say, you know, I was a product of my environment. Before I could even go talk to Roland about being my mentor and my sponsor, I had to come to grips with the fact that he was gay. Because I had other gay people in my life and I accepted the fact that they were gay, but I wasn't really sure how I felt about that because deep on the inside, that's that's wrong, you know? And I'm really grateful that I managed to set that aside and just go, you know, sit in his living room with him and his husband and like get past that discomfort. The initial, all of that inside stuff that my parents put in my head. Because it forced me to come to terms with the fact that they were wrong and that, that, you know, people are people and doesn't matter who this person is or what their lifestyle choices are. He's got an awful lot of things that I need. And for me to be closed minded to that would be shorting myself. So I managed to get to that point fairly quickly, you know, within a couple of, of weeks of, of thinking about this before I was just turn around and walk away and say, don't you know, forget the whole thing and you know then over the course of the next 5 years we spent an awful lot of time unpacking all of those kinds of beliefs that i had and examining them and rejecting the stuff that needed to be rejected and i will tell you it's a hard task but when i tried to examine everything that i believed and why i believed it most of it came from my childhood and most of it got rejected. I am about as 180 degree opposite as the way I was when I was 25 as I could be at this point. And my beliefs about everything, but you know, until I f- was enlightened and educated and saw that there was another way, I only knew what I knew. And I was in such a small environment with the people that I had around me that everybody was the same way. You know, I didn't run in the circles of people who were open-minded about things. So I just didn't understand what, what I didn't understand. And it's a very, very narrow view of the world. But I, Roland just opened the curtains for me and made me realize that there's a ton of stuff out there. And it's it's so much better on the other side. <laughs> a saying I love is,
0: you can be right or you can be happy. Oh, man. And I used to think being right was the most important thing. And I'm like, oh, I'll be wrong all day long if it leads <laughs> to happiness. You know,
1: I want to say happy, but I struggle with that so bad. That's a tough one for me. And I've wrestled with that from the first time that I heard it early in program is that I want to be right. Like, I want to be right so bad because I still have this thing, this validation thing that I need to prove myself. You know, it's one of those insecurities. Like, I need to be right so that you know that I'm smart and you'll respect me. It's another one that's really hard to override. I have to manual override that a lot. So then you're telling me that your healing and growth isn't complete? <laughs> Not there yet. No, sir. <laughs> I've got so far to go. It's, it's the same old cliche that the more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. You know, yeah. and I have come so far and the farther I come, I realize the farther there is to go. But I look at that as a positive thing because I don't I don't want to get done because then what am I going to do?
0: Yeah, I used to think all the times, oh, there's more. I'm not done yet. Really used to piss me off and make me angry. <laughs> and now I don't think I don't know. I think it's a gradual change. And now I'm like, oh, good, there's more. Oh, there's something else to learn. Oh, there's something else to explore. Yeah. If we're done. That might mean that life is really boring, or it means it's the end of our life. And
1: right. <laughs> you know. Or yeah. that I'm still stuck with all of the negative things about myself that I haven't managed to overcome yet. And that's a horrifying thought. Five years ago, I had all of this self-awareness and I understood a lot of my my psychology and, and my my tendencies, but I still didn't have the insight into the insecurities and the childhood events that drove those things. And that's where so much of my growth has come from that you know, that I wrote this book about is that, you know, understanding all of those insecurities or the behaviors is one thing, but actually changing them. I didn't know that that was possible. And so when I started through this last process of, I'll, I'll give you some examples here. When people ignore me, if if I'm in a room and people ignore me, then, you know, that triggers me and I feel like I need to do something to be the center of attention. Right. And with the help of my therapist, we went back through a lot of childhood events and, and we landed on one that my mom used to do to me. And my dad was the disciplinarian. I got a spanking every day of my life until I was about 13, but my mom wasn't big into that. So she would put me in the corner or, you know, find some place for me to wait until my dad got home to spank me so that I could think about what I did. And if she was working in her sewing room out on the back porch, Then my place to wait was inside the trash can. I would have to roll in the big dumpster cart from outside and pull the trash bags out of it and sit in there and think about what I did. You know, at six, seven years old, you spend two hours in the trash can a couple of times a week, you start creating certain beliefs about yourself, right? And I was usually blaming myself. I was mad at myself for not being able to keep my mouth shut when I know that this is a possible outcome. But I would get excited about something, go tearing through the house, being a six-year-old kid. You know, it's what you do when you're that age. But I was never allowed to be a kid. And so I would forget that and I would do something and I would end up in the trash can. And it wasn't a conscious thought, you know, throughout my adult life. I never thought about those events, but in my psyche and in my understanding of who I am, there's, you know, Justin's a piece of trash. Justin's a piece of garbage. Justin is so unimportant that he can go sit in the trash can and that's an acceptable thing, right? It never occurred to me that my mom was broken, that it was my mom that was fucked up in that situation, that if I saw my neighbor putting their kid in a trash can, I wouldn't think that kid must be fucked up. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. not, no, it's the parent. But until I examined that and realized that, I have this belief about myself that I'm not good enough that's based on something that's not true, that it was my mom that was broken and not me. Then I can overcome that self-belief. I can, with the help of EMDR therapy, which you know kind of reprograms the emotions that you have attached to memories and events, I can change the way that I feel about myself and the way that I felt about myself then. And that is where I built the positive self-image that I have now. Is finding all of those events when I was a kid, whether it was my dad spanking me for not having a perfect stack of firewood or a million other things, not going to the toolbox and getting the wrench fast enough when he's sitting there in the car waiting on it. You know, none of those things were about me not being good enough. It's about my parents having impossible expectations that I'm trying to meet. And so overturning those self-beliefs and understanding that when I'm triggered, when I have an insecurity that gets sprung by somebody, I can immediately think to myself is this real or am i am i having a you know a reaction based on an incorrect belief that that's not part of who i am anymore and 95% of the time i would say probably 100% of the time that's exactly what's happening and i can override that and and get past that negative feelings my amygdala was triggered it was a false alarm i'm actually okay nobody thinks i'm a horrible person and you know it takes time and practice to do that it starts out you know maybe it takes me 2 days to reflect on something but when I'm on top of my game now, I can do that in a thought, and right. that has changed everything about my life. Everything—it's unbelievable. But yeah. you know, I still have—I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Love that books the series. But the dead planet—I think it was Magrathia, something like that. It's a planet where people have been have been extinct on it for millions of years, but it still has that automated missile defense system. And when the spaceship gets too close, those missiles fire. And I use that as my visual for what goes on inside my head. I know those things aren't true about me anymore, but the missiles still fire. Those insecurities still get triggered, and I have to manual override and and abort. But it's doable. It's totally doable. And once that happens, the negative self-image turns into positive self-image. The self-confidence shows up. All of the things that dragged me through the mud, even though I was aware of them, are no longer dragging me through the mud unless I let them. Oh, there's so much to unpack there one of the things I speak about often is the father
0: wound and that's the effect on children from a physically absent or emotionally distant father mm-hmm. or a close father that's verbally <laughs> abusive and you know is not the best role model or experience giver and and also all the research in adverse childhood experiences oh yeah. And it doesn't matter if it happens, you were put in the trash once or put in the trash repeatedly. It just takes one thing to make a slight of word, a a weird look from somebody can just create that little trauma that has your missiles always firing. Yep. All right. So yeah, it's amazing. But, you know, I think so many guys, especially men were taught that, you shrug it off well they didn't break your arm and put you in the trash right right, right. you got in the trash voluntarily <laughs> didn't you no it's like the little things those slights you know they're not getting picked on the kickball team you know mm-hmm. all those little things add up and create our judgments and beliefs about
1: ourselves and they're usually wrong for sure you know i've got five out of ten on the ace test i'm destined for all the horrible things and right i didn't have any hope of avoiding that i don't think but you know I love what you're saying about about the little things because I've known that about myself through my adult life that I can handle my house getting burned down or my car wreck, you know, getting fired from a job. The big stuff I can handle It's the little day-to-day stuff that burns me to the ground. And it's so much harder to defend against that stuff because the big stuff's only going to happen once in a while. But the little stuff happens all day, every day. And until you get your head in the right space, like it's just a constant barrage of negative input. Yeah. And if
0: that's what you're brought up when like our resilience is already taxed and weakened with all these things we're not even conscious of. Mm -hmm. So that a current one more circumstance, like, oh, like why am I overreacting to this? I'm like, no, I'm reacting to my life's experience (laughs) that has me off kilter all the time.
1: Yeah. I use the analogy of the pressure gauge. If my needle's staying right on that line between the green and the red, it only takes a little, (laughs) And I'm over the edge, you know, if I can get it back down to some breathing room, then I can manage myself.
0: Yeah. So many men without awareness, without healing, without having a place to share what they're going through, they're right on that red line and they think that's normal life. It is. I mean, until you've experienced something else, that is normal, right? Rather good point, Right. Normal doesn't mean it's helpful or beneficial. It's just normal for you, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, your normal may not be a good normal until you can realize that it doesn't have to be that way, then you think that that's what you've got to work with. I didn't know there's another way. So how did you find that other way? Was it easy for you to choose therapy as the way for you to get help? I had a block against that too because getting therapy is not a manly thing. All these ideas of manliness just really railroaded my early decisions. But working with Roland... You know, Roland was not a therapist, but Roland had an awful lot of life experience and going through all the same stuff that we're talking about. And so five years of working with Roland opened me up to the idea that there's an awful lot of things I can do to improve my understanding of myself. And so by the time he passed away, I was wide open to the idea of therapy and committed to the process of self-discovery and self-improvement and just self-betterment. And that's not something that I've ever backed off from. And I don't know if it's just the way I'm wired or a result of how I came into this world, but I've always been an extremist. You know, an emotional extremist. I feel everything to eleven. I do everything to eleven. And one of my jokes that I make to my wife is, you know, I don't do a little bit of anything. So if I'm going to do it, it's going to be a thousand percent. And so, in some ways, that can be bad if you're committed to, you know, drinking. <laughs> you know, I got to drink more than everybody else. But. In terms of being committed to a positive lifestyle, you know, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to have. Yeah. Cool. So,
0: one of the things I discovered, you know, growing up, I'm kind of opposite of you. I was not raised with a religious family at all. So, I thought that made me an atheist. Mm. I remember like at age, uh, you know, nine, there was a there was like a Cub Scout badge and you had to like read the Bible or something like I we don't have a Bible. I shouldn't be forced to read that. I was all like indignant. <laughs> how, how dare you insist I read this book I've never heard of? And because I'm an atheist and I thought I was an atheist because I didn't have a Bible. That's really I had no strong beliefs. I just had just a lack of belief. So I thought right. that meant a belief. <laughs> right. You know, one of the things that has helped me over the years is realizing I'm not just the body. I am spiritual as well. Right. That I'm not just this meat suit here to be suffering and torturing myself. And one of the tools that helped me is uh, are the Akashic Records, and that's something I do with people now. And I know if you have never heard of this, you're not having experience, but would you be willing to have a brief experience here? Yes, absolutely. Cool. So I open the records via a prayer. I'll make it clear when it's time to start asking questions. And... It allows you to ask questions of what I call your spiritual support team. It's not just one person. It's from my experience of it, it's almost like I'm surrounded by people and they're all giving me advice. They're all answering your questions. It's like a chorus of people answering your questions. So we'll see what's there. You can ask about you know past, present, now, anything else you want to unpack. And we'll do a few questions in there and see what shows up for you. All right. Sound good? All right. Hmm. And so we do acknowledge the forces of light, asking for guidance, direction, and courage to know the truth as it is revealed for our highest good and the highest good of everyone connected to us. O Holy Spirit of God, help me to know Justin in the light of the Akashic records, to see Justin through the eyes of the lords of the records, and enable me to share the wisdom and compassion that the masters, teachers, and loved ones of Justin have for him. The records are now open. What would you like to ask? Ooh, this is tough. (laughs) All right, let's see. Is there anything that Justin needs to know or be aware of at this time? Ah, you were still in more of the beginning phase of your service to others than at the middle or end of it. The service you offer humanity is like a spear tip and you're still at the point of it. So it gets wider and wider. So there's a widening flow to the service that you bring to humanity. In internet speak, and marketing, it's like a long tail. You have a long and widening tail of service, of benefit, of healing. And it's not just this book. It's your willingness to be at the forefront, your willingness to, again, be this tipping point, to be the point of a spear. It's breaking through things and widening, giving space for healing to come in, for positivity to come in, for resilience to come in. All the Your trail is all these uplifting positive things, and you're at the head of this, you're at the tip of this, making that breaking point. And it's not just the book, it's not just a podcast, it's being you. Right. So it's the more authentic you are, the more vulnerable you are, the more you're sharing, you're going deeper into that scar tissue of, of humanity and of men, and you're parting the way so that the light can come in, so that the healing can come in, so that the awareness can come in. Yeah. It's like your mission, your role is being like it's like an arrowhead. It's the end of a spear that instead of causing pain, it's almost like, like you've been poked and prodded for so for so long, and now you're you're finding a way to change that and be A mechanism, uh, again, the spear tip, it's almost like it's a a mechanism of what could be war, but you're using it as a tool of goodness, of healing. Right, right. I like that. Good, (laughs) (laughs) because that's who you are. So it's good that you like it. Yes. Awesome. Is there anything else that Justin needs to hear at this time that would be to his benefit? So there's a lot more, and tell me if this resonates, there's a lot more creative ideas that you have and things that you're going to create and share with the world. Oh, definitely. And there's just like, yes, like every idea you have is worthy of being pursued. It's not as if you're full of like, oh, yeah, it's not like you're full of nonsense and flight. They're not distractions. It's really encouraging you to, um, boy, trust the pull of every idea. You cannot have an idea that isn't meant to become to fruition. Mm -hmm. That's strong. None of your ideas are meant to distract you. They're not keeping away from that. It's, again, if you feel it, it's not the difference of an idea of, it's the things I think I should do because others are telling me versus that inspired idea that you have. Those inspired ideas are all worth acting on. They are all of service to yourself and to others. Is there anything specific? Is there, so there's something, so writing is still very strong, but there's a twist to it. It's almost like, and add, maybe it's a, a workbook or a course, or there's, there's something tied to a book. Not just that there, here's another book, it's like a, adding an active element to a book somehow. Is that resonate with any idea that you're thinking of? Coaching, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying to help people
1: find their way through this process. Cool,
0: yeah, it's the more actions, the more activities, the more energy you can bring to, it's like the written word is part of that tip getting that access point, and then there's more activities, there's more engagement that widens up and lets you in and lets more people feel, lets them bring more feeling into themselves as well. Mm. All right. <laughs> with all of that
1: shared, <laughs> is there anything you would actually like to ask? Oof. I mean, it's, that's all of the stuff that I wonder about. You know, What direction am I supposed to be going with all of this self-revelation that I'm finding? Yeah, Forward. Forward.
0: and you get to just just decide, am I going forward? And you'll know this too. That's a great question to ask yourself. You know, here are the five things I could do or I'm feeling kind of sluggish today. Like, am I lost? Am I going forward? And just trust like, yeah, of course you're going forward. Yeah. When you pause enough to ask yourself, the answer is obvious. That's awesome. Self-awareness is such a powerful and growing tool for you. The more you ask yourself, you're strengthening that awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, actually you're kind of sitting in the rest area today, Justin. Like, oh, all right, well, I'm aware of it. Am I doing this by choice or have I fallen into this? Like, hmm, how might I step forward? And you're like, oh and just trust that. Right. You're someone flowing with inspired ideas. So by asking yourself more questions, you get more momentum behind those inspired ideas. For sure. Yeah. The only times you would be stuck or going backwards are when you've fallen into the ego, into the the shields are up, and you're just like, oh, I so don't want that idea to fail. I'm just gonna retreat from it mm. entirely. Yeah. There's great excitement. And again, so trust your inspired ideas, find ways to take action, find ways to create action around all of your creations. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That makes
1: sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We're human beings. So it's about, you want to bring more doing to discover the full beingness of you. Right which is often contrary to some spiritual ideas, like just be like, no, you're in physical form, you got to do stuff. So, so don't be afraid of, of action. And again, engagement and changing the physical body can help change the mental body, the emotional body, the spiritual body, all that can be the access point of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Acting your way into a better, better thinking, something like that.
0: Yeah. I mean, a common saying is fake it till you make it. And we're suggesting, no, you just do it. Like, take the action. There's nothing fake about it. (laughs) To quote Yoda, like, there's no try. There's no faking. You're doing something or you're not. Right, right. Cool. Yeah, but there's just a lot of excitement. Neat. All right, I'm going to close this space out. I would like to thank the masters, teachers, and loved ones for their love and compassion. I would like to thank the lords of the Akashic Records for their point of view. And I would like to thank the Holy Spirit of Light for all knowledge and healing. The The record's now closed. Amen. The record's now closed. Amen. The record's now closed. Amen. Cool. All right. How was that for you? Inspiring. <laughs> all right. Good. Very
1: yeah. inspiring.
0: Yeah. I often, uh, at live events or expos or sometimes I'm teaching classes and I find that there's always, I call it borrowed benefits, mm-hmm. even by others listening to the information that someone's getting that's specific to them. It's generic enough. We're all human beings. So right. you, 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 yeah, met, you started by talking about we all have the same three common things that people are dealing with and facing. So again, I find that What helps you, your braveness and allowing others to hear that, to witness that can help them as well. Absolutely. So so thank you. And again, I'm still like, my my legs are all a tingle with the (laughs) tingling excitement and the energy of all your potential. But the thing that strikes me even now is just that, yeah, your inspirations like almost must be acted on. Like there's no doubt about that. And you can't have an inspired idea. I say this to other people. It's like... If you had inspired ideas that you couldn't do, that makes like the universe just this big practical joke machine. Mm. You're like, oh, we're going to make this guy want this stuff that he can't get. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and, like, and like, what? And, like, and, and that's not how the universe operates. So right.
1: But you're right about the action. You got to do. You got to do. It's the foundation. Beautiful.
0: So does anything stand out today... Not the 30s, not the 50s, but today. Does anything stand out as kind of the most ridiculous thing that society still says being a man means?
1: Oof. All of it. I mean, I will (laughs) say that the change is happening. The attitudes are changing, but and that's slow to happen, I think. But I think there's still such a stigma attached to manly pursuits. And, And I'll give you an example. I met my wife, who is amazing person. She's a veterinarian. She has her own practice. I met her when I was 38. I moved to Florida to marry her and, and build a life together. And not only did I have to overcome my own stuff, but from all the guys that I worked with, my buddies, everybody like could not fathom the idea that I would have a wife that makes more money than me. And I might work from home and do the laundry and the dishes since I'm working out of the house while she's out you know, working on horses and just general attitudes like that, that you would never even think about, you know, is it okay for a man to not be the breadwinner? Can I bring in, you know, 40% less income than she does and still be a man? And you know what? The answer is yes. Yeah. The real answer is that that gave me the freedom to pursue all the stuff that I wanted to do instead of being forced into the highest paying job that I can find just for for the sake of making money. Right. But I think those kinds of ideas about you know what a man's role is and what a man can do and can't do are really inhibiting to personal happiness and personal freedom. So is there a
0: key to personal happiness freedom, a key to a happy life? Yes, absolutely.
1: It's the age-old axiom of know thyself and be true to thyself or to thyself be true. And for me, you know, the less I try to be who I think other people want me to be, and the more I embrace who I am and people will come and go as they please, the the happier my life is. And it's all about just being committed to my own truth and not being committed to anybody else's truth because we're all fallible human beings. And who knows what that person expectation is based on. And it's probably something unhealthy to begin with. And it certainly has nothing to do with me. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. Again,
0: I've, about five years ago, a coach I was working with called me, Andy, you're the king of authenticity. I was like, what good is the authenticity? Who wants that? What? But I'm like, oh my God, that's at the core of everything. I keep finding more yes. and more when you're your authentic self,
1: you know, at our core, we want and deserve to be happy. Yep. <laughs> All of our efforts that are taking us away from that, like what a wasted life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and I did that. I wasted so much of my life. And I think that's part of why I'm so motivated now. I feel like I'm making up for lost time. I get that.
0: Sometimes I'm like, man, I have so much energy now. It's like, oh, it's because I was spent so much energy in the past of being, maro- holding myself down. Yeah. You know, the, the energy of judgment. And, just, you know, can, yes. and even the the rules of being a man are there these tight, constricting things that don't feel good. They have you feeling trapped. So when you break free of that, I find you can have more energy and vitality and oh, action. Yeah.
1: One of the early things that I learned working with Roland, Roland's partner, Tommy, was a, an artist. And he painted these big giant paintings. And he would copy other paintings just because he liked them. And their house was, you couldn't see a wall. It was thousands of paintings on every square inch. And I decided to try it one day because I liked looking at them and it appealed to me and I liked watching Tommy paint. And one day I tried it out. And you know what? I like painting. Now my house is covered in paintings. You know, but that's something that didn't fit into my ideas of manliness prior to that. And and I was just missing out. What a great example of that,
0: of following the lead of something a man is doing that feels good, not that is constricting and labeling and forcing you into something else. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I went with the societal structure from the culture that I lived in, I would be out deer hunting on the weekends, which I'm not into just consuming all of my time, you know, watching NASCAR and and drinking beer and doing absolutely nothing productive with my life, just existing and killing. And I don't like either one of those things, you know, but that's where I think you have to have the courage and the commitment to yourself to step away from whatever expectation, whether it's real or imagined, and just do you be that authentic you and not worry about everybody else. Because nobody else is paying your bills. Nobody else is doing your laundry and making your bed. I mean, it's your life. Nobody else should be managing that, you know?
0: Beautiful. Well, Justin, I appreciate your courage and your authenticity. Thanks for all that you're doing. And thanks for all the things, boy, I get a sense that you're going to keep doing (laughs) and do even more of. What's the best way for people to find out
1: more about you, what you're up to, the book and your podcast with your wife? Everything about me that you want to know is on my website at jboydlong.com. And I don't do a lot of social media because I am i have come to the conclusion that social media is, is kind of bad and destructive to society. And so I'm trying not to participate in that any more than I have to, other than to be a presence to point people to my website. But I have an active blog on there. I've got, uh, you can get a hold of me through there, contact all the stuff. So jboydlong.com. Awesome. Great.
0: We'll be sure and have links to the site, links directly to the book, links to the podcast at realmenfield.org, in the show notes for this episode. Again, Justin, thanks so much for joining us, and everyone else. Thanks for listening. I hope you got insights from Justin's courage and willingness to open his records and for everything he shared. Just check out his book. Everybody has adverse childhood experiences. I don't think you can be a human being and not have suffered trauma in growing up. I almost, I you know, the older I get, the more I'm realizing, you know, that's part of. I guess it's required.
1: It's just part of being a human being.
0: Yeah. So to go for that full ride, it's almost like we need to have the building blocks to make malfunctioning adults so that we can unpack it all and make the best functioning versions of ourselves for ourselves and our families.
1: That's exactly it. And thank you for everything that you do, Andy. I really appreciate the work that you do to try to break down these stigmas and and change the world. There is no try. (laughs) We are breaking down stigmas. We are.
0: Yeah, right. Own it. We got to own it. Everybody own it. That's I love to model Like, what I want people to see. And yeah own your successes own your uh, yeah i mean you're doing it or you're not try is a lie we tell ourselves that's it that's it right either i will tell myself i'm trying to give myself a break because i'm not really doing it. i'm just sitting here watching netflix all day right. it's the excuse for not <laughs> yeah or i did it and i'm not willing to take ownership of it for some reason yeah so yeah throw try away you know you make an attempt you succeed that's really all there is right beautiful Again, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Wherever you're listening to Real Men Feel, subscribe, share this with somebody, post a review, a comment, reach out to me at realmenfeel.gmail.com. And if you want to have an uh, Akasha Record experience, if you want to get a different version of your own life, get some insight, get some feedback from uh, beyond the monkey brain that we all got going on all the time, visit theandygrant.com and check out some info on Akasha Records for yourself. Until next time, be good to yourselves.